I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix and Book Club podcast. I'm your co-host, Hoy, and with me, as always, is that evil sorcerer, Jeff Goad. Hello, hello. And with us this week, we are very honored to have Cleo Yunsu Davis, designer of such games as Long Drive Back from Busan, The Fog Knows Your Name, Past the Sugar Please, which is part of the anthology Honey and Hot Wax, a compendium of erotic games from uh, Pelgrane Press, and the upcoming Battle of the Boy Bands. Hello, Cleo. Hello, I'm glad to be here. So Cleo, we like to ask people's uh, secret origin stories in terms of their uh, uh, finding of gaming and fantasy fiction. So how did you get into uh, gaming? And then we'll ask you about fantasy fiction. Um, well, really, like a lot of people who, who've been on this, I'm sure it kind of it's hard to pinpoint like an exact moment for like it becoming a hobby. Mm-hmm. Um, because that would like, stretch back all the way to like early childhood, like what books were read to me as a kid. And then I, I picked up uh, 3.5 D&D when I was like, I want to say like nine or 10 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was funny because like, I always thought I was potentially going to go into like video games, ga- like video game design when I was growing up. And then that steadily became tabletop games um, after I went to grad school. Um, and the same, like, I don't, and, yeah, the fantasy literature has just been, that's been like a passion of mine again, since like early childhood. And then I started writing uh tie in fiction for, I don't know if you're familiar with like the blue rose RPG. Sure. Sure. Mm-hmm. From, yeah. Uh, so I, yeah, from uh, Green Ronin. Yeah. Right. And so I write tie-in fiction for them. Are you familiar with the concept of Appendix N and, and the works that are contained therein? Or we just kind of blindsided you with when we asked you to come on the show? <laughs> no, I, I'm familiar. Um, I haven't read robustly from from the list, I would say. Like, there's stuff I'm familiar with. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I, I, there's there's definitely like authors there that I, have, I haven't heard of until like I've taken more, until I took a more uh, closer look at it for this. Right. But I'm sure you'd read all of the Gardner Fox before we asked oh, yeah. you. <laughs> totally. Got posters on my walls. <laughs> there you go. And in fact, this week we are reading Gardner Fox's Kothar and the Conjurer's Curse. Uh, Jeff, do we have a Hygaxian word of the week? We do. And actually, originally, I picked the word malefic. Uh, but then I discovered that we've already used the word malefic. Uh, but the reason I hadn't initially caught it is whenever I pick a new word, I do a control F in this like document I have to make sure I haven't already picked it. And I didn't see it. But that's because the the book I have spells malefic wrong. Uh, <laughs> so once I realized that, I realized I needed to pick a new word. So the new word that I picked is... Supernal. Supernal. And supernal is found on page 36. And our sentence was... Her flesh was wet and clammy where the mist touched it, and she seemed gifted with supernal vision as she saw the body of Zothaquinor lying as he might sleep. So that's our word supernal, which means relating to the sky or heavens, celestial. There you go. Good word. Cleo, do you have a candidate or is that is that our, our word for the week? That's a good I mean the word that I 
have highlighted in mine is wenchhood. Because I didn't know that was like a word even. Uh, I I think it's the only time I've ever seen that word. Um, And it was so funny that I was like, I have to uh, highlight this. Right. (laughs) I was saying to the uh, reading group, uh, which we had before, which is some of our patrons, um, that I just looked up. uh, He likes uh, Gardner Fox likes to throw in sort of semi-archaic historical terms. So one Mm -hmm. of the words he used was cack, which I, I guess means saddle. Uh, but when I was looking it up in Wiktionary, it was listing what the word "cac" means in a bunch of different languages. And in Cebuano, which is a, a language of the Philippines, it's uh, a secondary meaning, informal meaning, is adjusting your uh, male parts after an unwanted direction. <laughs> so, so I thought it would maybe very apropos to this book. That's fitting. <laughs> <laughs> And one other thing we like to do is chat about which edition of the book we're, we're working with. Now, Cleo, I know I helped set you up with the ebook, mm-hmm. um, and I've got this um, 1970 uh, Belmont Books edition. And what I really like about this edition is that they spelled his name wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it's Gardiner, as like somebody who is a garden, a gardener. Um, <laughs> Yeah, there's an extra letter in that name there. All right. So they spelled his own name wrong on the cover. But yes, that is the uh, 1970 Belmont Books cover with our Jeffrey Catherine Jones painting with like a witch and I guess Kothar and some kind of a demon thing. Is yeah. that what you're working with, Hoy? Uh, no, I'm working with the ebook as well from the um, Gardner Fox Library from Kurt Bruegel's um, uh, transcriptions of that. And um, I know that Jeffrey Catherine Jones definitely has more sort of interpretive covers than sort of um, uh, representational covers. So mm-hmm. I always like her mood on the covers. Yeah, cool. So we can head on into the library. Uh, Cleo, what do you think? What did you think of Kothar and the Conjurer's Curse? Oh boy, <laughs> <laughs> I, have a, I have a lot of thoughts because, like, oh god, where do I even start? <laughs> so. I mean, whenever you're going into a, a book that's this old and from this specific genre, right? Specifically, like sword and sorcery stuff. Like, you know, you're going to run into problematics. Yeah. <laughs> like, you just you know it. Um, and some you run into more. Some books you run into more stuff than others. And this was yeah. one where it was like pretty early on. I was I, I understood how like the treatment of like women <laughs> was going to roll out. Um, and there's like a few just kind of maybe not obviously racist tropes but like if you like read into it enough then you kind of like there's a description of like any it's like such a like it's not even a side character i would say it's like a throwaway mention of a character who's like dusky skin woman with ebony Mm -hmm. hair and she's like an evil sorceress and that's like the one i think explicitly like pete like like a black woman who's in this um but i mean there were things i enjoyed about it but it was kind of i had to like brace myself after those early chapters and kind of the stand-ins for the mongolians are called the mongrels yeah right right. Uh, yeah the the mingles from uh yeah it's just like okay let's just throw in one word (laughs) sure but with the mingles and the fritz leiber's newonian word right there's no r to make like the dog you know right yeah exactly (laughs) They're, they're not turning it into another word that we do have right that somehow means that you are no longer human yeah right 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 um, yeah, it's, it's. I'm also. I feel like it's. It's worth mentioning that, as as well as being a game designer and a writer, I'm a cultural consultant professionally. Sure. So okay. I had to be. It's really interesting to read this with like that training in my brain. 
So as a cultural consultant, uh, what kind of feedback would you have about Kothar and the Conjurer's Curse? Oh, boy. For Gardner Fox. <laughs> what would be some recommendations? Because, like, usually I have, like, a nice spreadsheet that's, like, really organized. And I feel like the recommendations I would have would have to be, like, novel length and it's none of itself. <laughs> I would have to just, like, tackle so many of the tropes that were really prevalent during that time, right? Where, like... I mean, just for starters, like women kind of as set pieces or props and like mm-hmm. overly sexualizing them. And then kind of rape was thrown around a lot in this one, I noticed, um, where it's like. Kothar, and in a weird way, like, yeah. like like he points out that he could have raped her if, if he wanted to. And she kind of agrees and thinks it's really kind of sweet that he yeah. didn't rape her. <laughs> yeah, that was. And that's probably the weirdest instance of it. Right. Where it's yeah. like, oh, this like is this supposed to be comforting the like the pointing out like that you have the power to do this and like if you wanted to you would have uh <laughs> doesn't at, at the very least like really hasn't aged well and then there's also the instance where they've you know they've stormed the fortress with the uh, the robber baron fortress mm-hmm. and the peasants um, are exacting the revenge and yeah, yeah yeah and like it's specifically pointed out that like the peasants are like molesting the women who i guess were like working for the robber baron yeah um, and it's just kind of like a throwaway thing. Like, yeah, that's happening. Like, it's not a problem. We're not going to like try to, uh, intervene here or anything or yeah. point out that maybe this is an issue. Right, and that's right. what's happening as Kothar and Stefania are leaving. So like, it's just like a thing happening as they're taken off. Like, okay. Right, right. Yeah. I think it's like, they mentioned that and then they're like, and then we had ale and cheese and bread and talked about like <laughs> Stefania's origin story. Yeah. Right, right. I wonder, um. And this is not to, you know, make light of it. Um, we do know that Gardner Fox was pretty well versed in history. Um, he had a very large private collection, um, you know, 3,000, 4,000 historical reference books. And so um, it's a pretty common theme in a lot of books I've read about pre-modern warfare that that's a thing that happens. Like that's, that's the, especially, especially siege warfare, it's, it's, it's more vicious if the stakes are high. So it's just like even people would, wouldn't normally condone that stuff like okay that's just a thing and we can't do anything to stop that and i wonder if he's playing to that thing or if because uh, I, I don't sense that in his other books he has that sort of as flippant an attitude right jeff in some of the other books that we've read about about sexual violence as it was in this book um you know i don't actually recall yeah i'd have to go back and listen to those earlier episodes but i don't i it's it's not as bad as conan can yeah. be conan right. can get very rapey right right yeah I mean, it will be literally chasing a woman through a field. Right, right. And again, I, I say this not to say this is any way of like, oh, this is not so bad. I'm just kind of interested in the sort of the context of, ha- of how it presents itself. Yeah. Uh, um, and then oddly enough, he was uh, a writer of historical romance novels and bodice rippers of, of various sorts and then uh, spy erotica. Um, so uh, I, I wonder if he's writing to the tropes. Uh, very, and he's very clear, clearly aware of tropes as mm-hmm. we c- come into the books later on. Um, is he relishing in them? Uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk about that as we get to them, I guess. Um, so what other things jumped out at you, maybe both from as your work as, again, a cultural consultant, and then things that you're just like, hey, this is enormously silly, but fun, or whatever the impressions that you have. Yeah. So enormously silly, but fun. I, re- I really like 
And just just from the name, it's like silly and fun. Lupalina slash uh, Samantha. What was it? Samandra. Samandra. I keep wanting to say Samantha. I'm like, no, it's not like such a common name. It has to have like a twist on it to make it fantasy. Right. Um, But like the fact that she's a wolf woman and her name is Lupalina. Right. Lupalina. Right. And and Ursula, the uh, the original bear woman too. Yeah. It's like we don't have to worry about getting things too on the nose. It's clearly it's just like that is the goal here right, to right. advertise these things very clearly right right now overall hoy what was your experience with reading kothar and the conjurer's curse what did you think i mean just those things that cleo mentioned did jump out at me and just did throw me out a little bit because i don't recall all that stuff being that on the nose uh, i mean the sort of sexual violence aspects um as last time um but there were things i really quite enjoyed about the book um i liked uh uh, Lupalina. I think she's a terrific character. You know, she's she's a trope, but she's a terrific character. I think she's very fun. She's like aware of what she wants. She's very sort of morally ambiguous, but um, you know, but she helps out and and um, so I enjoyed her. Um, I really liked also the sort of um sort of nested narratives, which you don't always see in mm-hmm. um in sort of a book of this length. So like when they're telling each other stories about things that had happened, um, uh, I quite enjoyed like when when uh, Kothar is riding on the horse and he's telling sort of, he's telling sort of very briefly the story of his youth, but you're not clear how much of that he told to, to I can blank on her name for now, but, or how much of it's just him recalling it, but that really helped to humanize him. That wasn't in some of the earlier books. Oh, with uh, Stefania? Stefania, right. So. It's funny you should mention that because I, I haven't read any of the previous Kothar books. Yeah. <laughs> and like, I understand like you don't need to, to have gold no. context, no, 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 but no, exactly. normally... Like, I am a stickler for I have to read everything in order. Like, if I'm watching, like, movies, I have to watch, like, the first ones first. If I'm, I can't dive into the middle of a TV show. I just can't. I can't do it. It's just, the same it, way. It, right, it right. hurts my brain. Uh, but this one, I, w- I understood, like, this. Is, these are, like, one shot, basically. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, at first, because there were, there were some references where I was like, okay, is this calling back to something from, like, earlier books? Like, how much of this, is this, like, backstory revelation kind of, like, summarizing stuff that's happened before? Because I, I just didn't know. Uh, and I had I started getting that feeling a little bit of like when you because I also I design LARPs uh, it's like one of my big things I, pl- I play in LARPs slash used to play in LARPs pre pandemic times, right. um, and with campaign LARPs specifically with like you know Vampire the Masquerade and stuff like that if you try to jump into the middle of a campaign like everyone's got their plot going already and you're like I don't know how to fit myself into this like what backstory do I need to know everyone has like. 10 pages of their own character backstory, which somehow like weaves in parts of the universe. And so I started having that fear, that same kind of fear when I was reading this and it just steadily became clear. No, it doesn't actually matter at all. <laughs> it doesn't <No>. at all. <laughs> no. And really, I, there's almost no references to anything that happened prior to this book either. Like, right. like Afgur Khan, who was a big part of the first book, is mentioned in name once, right. I think. Right. Um, somebody in the patron book club mentioned that Red Lorry was thought that Red, they thought Red Lorry was mentioned, but I don't. Really I didn't see a Red Lorry reference. Um, I didn't yeah. see it. Yeah, just a sword, you know, getting the sword, and then Afgur Khan. He wasn't even mentioned till later, I think, or yeah. Yeah, and like with the sword is the curse that he can't carry treasure. Right. But like that. Yeah, that's all was covered very quickly, and that's all you really needed right. to know. Since you mentioned sort of like story games and backstory, I wonder, and maybe that's more for the gaming side of this. Um, you know, I mean, this the game that I first became aware of, I still haven't played, is the um, long drive back from Busan. So, you know, you're sort of in a sort of contained situation and you're interacting with each other in a contained situation. Could you do um, this horse ride, long horse ride to nowhere as a, 
<laughs> you know, as a sword and sorcery story game. Um, and what would that look like? Oh, yeah, totally. Because like anything where you have like a nice little framing device, like we're going on a journey. Yeah. And like within the journey, we will be telling like little separate stories. It's like a, that's a very nice framing device. Um, yeah. And there are some. Oh, gosh, what is it called? So there is a fantasy LARP called before the storm, I want to say, and I, for the life of me, I can't remember the designer, mm. but it is, it's is—it's kind of Dragon Age-y in that it's like before the big siege and the big battle, like we are gathering here and like, t- like talk, and, and you have scenes from like the past and like how you got here. Um, and I love fantasy because I like those downtime fantasy mm-hmm. moments, like mm-hmm. both in literature and in games. Um because it's kind of it, it is what makes the characters human, right? right? Instead of just like, oh, we're waving a sword around twenty four seven. It's like, well, how did you get the sword? Right, <laughs> like, right. why do you like having a sword? Um, and I, I did like the moments where we talked about like his basically his child, like Kothar's <laughs> childhood, right? Like right. those were some of the the most fun scenes, right? And yeah, with games, like with specifically with LARPs and like very heavily narrative story games. I feel like it would be fun to explore some of these kind of like sword and sorcery tropes, but from a more like, let's dive into like the emotional aspects of it. What is it like to be a nomadic barbarian who never settles down and is constantly alone and in isolation? Like, is that lonely? Is that actually maybe terrible? And we don't talk about how it's terrible in the literature. <laughs> right. And that's, that's, I mean, that's what literally what the end hinges on. Right. And so, mm-hmm. um, and actually, as you mentioned, for such a compact book, there is a fair amount of downtime, right? And you don't feel like it's dragging the story down, but there's always these scenes of them eating, you know, suddenly uh, this incredibly powerful witch is like making bread at home. It's yeah. very domestic all, all of a sudden. Um, so to have those little grace notes, I think, was a lot of fun in a, in a book of this sort of um, almost throwaway character. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, yeah, in 156 pages in my ver- in my in my edition, at least, like there's so much stuff going on. There's all there is a fair amount of downtime, but there's also just a ton of action packed into it as well. And personally, I don't know how you guys felt just about the experience of reading it, but I had a lot of fun reading this one. Like I had no problem just turning each page and just mm-hmm. keep going. Like some of these that we read, like they're a real slog. Some of them. <laughs> this one was not a slog. I had a lot of fun reading this one. And there were some moments where, like, the visuals were just so exciting and fun for me. Like, specifically, there's this moment where it's like um, Samandra has drawn the pentagram in blood. And then the pentagram in blood, like, rises from the ground into the air. And then somehow, like, they're now at the Pleasure Palace with, like, the the penis, with, like, the penis towers (laughs) and the vagina doors. And, like, like, the whole thing, I could just hear Iron Maiden playing in the background and, like, see this, like, animated, like, in, like, you know, heavy, the heavy metal movie style. (laughs) (laughs) It felt very, like, liquid television Mm -hmm. or, I don't know. I I thought that was, like, tremendously fun. Right. Yeah, there's definitely Blue Oyster Gold playing in the back of my head. (laughs) 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 Right, when it describes the actual uh, Robert Barron's castle, the final towers being just carved to look like this sort of, uh, you know, snake head, demon head thing. And it's just mm-hmm. very, um, it's very Ralph Bakshi, something like that. Yeah. And like with uh, with with King Unus and his like laser beam eyes. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> right. So was, was there a moment when you were able to sort of just tip over into um, just going with the flow in this book, Cleo? Or is that just um, that it was always sort of very analytical for you when you were looking at this book? Um, no, I definitely like I ended up enjoying it because I, I kind of like siphoned my thoughts into three channels. One, which is like cultural consultant brain, which is always going to be running mm-hmm. the same way. It's like 
if you're a game designer and you're playing a game, you're always thinking about the mechanics and like, what can I learn from this? Um, and then there was like consumer brain of just like, am I, I'm going to just have, have fun with this and I'm going to like put aside problematic things just for a moment because like I spent a lot of time thinking about how one handles enjoyment of of media that has problems in it. Yeah. Um, I spent a lot of time thinking about like, how do you, how does one approach that? Um, and then also I did have kind of like my writer brain turned on about, okay, like what here feels really old and stale because it's been used a million times since then, often, yeah. often by authors who are inspired, you know, by these works. Um, what here actually feels kind of fresh or like it hasn't been used to death afterwards. Um, so I was able to kind of experience all three of those channels at once. Yeah. Uh, but it was, yeah, it was a quick read. I mean, also it's short, right? But it's also, it didn't feel, I think part of that was that it's not like, okay, we need you to know everything that happened in the previous books and we're going to have a chapter here, which is just like Cancel of Elrond style. And we're going to tell you all this backstory because you need to know it. Yeah, there's because, no info dumps yeah. with, with Kothar. Yeah, and because of that, I was just, it was like such a relief because I was kind of waiting for it to come early on, and then it just it was clear it wasn't, and it was just moving at a good pace. Like I know, I think some people I looked on Goodreads, and I think some people were like, eh, it felt kind of thin. I think they disliked some of the downtime, and I, I guess some people like pacing where it's like action constantly, mm-hmm. <laughs> like no, nonstop uh, magical hijinks. But I enjoyed the kind of more human feeling of this one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In terms of the various characters, are there any that really stood out to you as like, I would, you know, even if they weren't fully realized uh, to your liking, it's like, oh, there's something to hear that I can work with or, or you know, really want to latch onto or see more of. Uh, I love Lupalina slash yeah. Samandra because yeah. I'm, I'm playing in uh, a Thirsty Sword Lesbians game right now. So I think they just oh, wrapped right, up on cool. Kickstarter. Right. Yeah. I think it was this, this week. Yeah. And, yeah, and, and Misha <laughs> was our last guest. Uh, yeah. Oh, great. I love Misha. Um I'm, I'm also, a, I was a stretch goal writer for that, so I'm working on my my contributions for Thirsty Sword Lesbians. Oh, cool. Right. But in the campaign I'm playing in, I'm playing the Beast uh, one, which is very, like, very Lupalina in a lot of ways. <laughs> and so I really, and I also appreciated that she was, like, an older character. Right. And it wasn't all just, like, given, like, Stefania is constantly being referenced as, like, how shapely she is. And, like, yeah. in the yeah. first two chapter, there's, like, a million mentions of the fact that her dress is torn and you can see her boobs at all times. Yeah. Um, and, like, exactly what they're shaped like. Yeah, and she's tied to the stake and, like, she's about to get burned alive, but we're still very focused on, like, her heaving bosoms and the yes. whole thing. <laughs> the most important feature of this right. scene, clearly. Yeah. Uh, but Lupalina was, like, a lot of fun, and at the end, I was worried that they were gonna just, like, kill her off for drama. Uh, but then there was a lovely little twist where she she wasn't actually dead, right? Uh, which came as a relief. And I also I just like I love demon stuff, right? So when it went really heavy on the demons l- later on, I was like, yeah, this is my jam. Oh, and it got gruesome with the demons yeah. too. Like when like the tentacles like went into his skin and was like separating the skin from the body, and then they flayed him alive. Yeah, and then, like the, the sh- like the the demon woman kind of, kind of does a similar thing, right. but reshapes him from inside of his skin into like a giant toad. Right. Yeah. That so was, gross was, and so amazing. That was very, I actually really liked that. That was very Demon City Shinjuku or Legend of the Overfiend kind of <laughs> kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and and I totally relate to what you're talking about, how um about like how can we 
um, how do we best approach this kind of literature when like, it clearly has like, you know, fun things and interesting things we can learn from, but it's also like chock full of all kinds of problematic elements. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that like, and Hoy and I had a big conversation about this before we started the podcast mm-hmm. and kind of the big thing we landed on was that like, we are, um, we are not going to um, ignore the fact that there are all these problematic elements. We will always talk about it. We're not going to, um, we're not going to justify these problematic elements and just wipe away by saying, oh, well, they're a product of their time. It's like, sure, maybe you can do some of that, but also we're still in 2020 reading this stuff. So mm-hmm. we, 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 we still need to be like um, not excusing all of it, but we're also not going to tell people like, like boycott this because of this, this or that. If you're not comfortable reading it, absolutely. I yeah. get it. Like if you don't want to see those depictions, I'm not going to tell you to read it. But I'm also not saying that we should just like go ahead and like not read any of this stuff because of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is kind of a, a delicate walk between those like three different. Right. Some some days you're like, oh, I'm really challenged. This book is really challenging my oh, my, yeah. my, <laughs> my sensibilities. <laughs> yeah. right? We've had we've had some tough ones. Yeah. Oh, I bet. Yeah. 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 Yeah, but I, I think the things that you are uh, are pointing out, I think, are a lot of fun. Lupulina, I almost picture her being played like by like a mature Sophia Loren. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Interesting. Right. You know, she's got that little, uh, you know, or uh, you know, uh, Raquel Welch. You know, maybe a little a little later on, I could see her see her doing that. Um, she's totally fun, and and Ursula was fun too. The sort of the, and then you realize that they're sort of of the same ilk or sisterhood. Mm-hmm. And, and now I'm I'm now I'm curious about like. Uh, you know, the tiger witches and the, you know, the other, you know, from the, all the other regions. And I, I th- although, um, keep on forgetting her name, Stefania, even though Stefania is supposed to be sort of, uh, childlike, I think ultimately she shows more depths than, than were necessary for this, than, you know, in such a compact story, you know, probably more could have been done, but I thought that, um, you know, when she starts cottoning on that, she's a ruler, she, she, you sort of see her a little like hard edge start popping up like oh <laughs> i'm gonna have him you know i want him to you know be eaten by this demon you know in all eternity <laughs> yeah it felt a little bit like it kind of felt like fox was like i know i have to appease my readers and give them boobs so yeah. first few chapters <laughs> yeah we'll go heavy on the boobs right like i have to do it it's gonna just happen and maybe he enjoyed doing it. i don't know but like and then later on it's like okay we've gotten the boobs out of the way we'll mention them every once in a while and the hips that are constantly swaying in yeah. a way that makes it seem like maybe the, not like the safest way to walk like <laughs> <laughs> um, like even when she's like oh i like i'm fearing for my life and here i am like stepping through the ruins of what used to be my old home but here my, my hips i have to make sure they're swaying Thanks still <laughs> Yeah, it's like my, I forget the game that my boyfriend's currently playing, but he's currently playing one of these games where like um, the main character is a very like kind of busty anime woman, and <laughs> during the during the um, the like conversation scenes where like all the characters are still somehow even the busty <laughs> anime woman still just kind of like gently like <laughs> right, right. Like, like like lifting her breasts up and down, even though like she's just standing there talking. Yeah, boob yeah. physics and games. I don't even. Like, I, I'm sure there are like articles written on it, but I know that's like a whole thing of just like a breeze goes by and suddenly they're just like so buoyant. <laughs> but yeah, like once like the once we got the boobs kind of like out of the way, and there were enough reminders that she had them. Um, I felt like she was able to kind of come into her own to an extent, right? Like she Mm -hmm. was kind of defined by her gushing over Kothar and being like, oh, I want him to be in my life and I want him to, I want to make him like what, like some kind of general prime minister. Yeah, prime minister. (laughs) 
And he's like, no, I, I must be free to wander. It was kind of, it had like Mad Max feelings a little, like end of Mad Max. Right, right. Fury Road feelings <laughs> right, right. a little bit. Like that last scene of like, no, he must, he is a wanderer and he must go to right, wander. Right, right. Um, but yeah, she was, you know, and she was vengeful. And Bird by Leonard Skinner. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I was glad that she ended up becoming, you know, important in her own right and being settled somewhere where she can like have an influential right. story of her own in our minds. Right. I mean, should you go back my impression and, and others may disagree. I, I do feel like Gardner Fox does put more work into his uh, woman characters uh, than is common in this genre, at least mm-hmm. from what I've seen. Right, Jeff? Cause uh, like red Laurie was really great character. Who's yeah. sort of the, the, the quote unquote evil, witch who was in the, the first couple of books. Um, a couple of the other characters are, are Again, have some of their own agendas going on. Um, you know, because Lupalina doesn't need to reform in any way. She still says Lupalina, right? She's, she's, you know, exactly what she is is what she is, right? You know, she's sort of opportunistic, but she has some sort of bedrock morals where she, you know, w- didn't kill Stefania when she was an infant. She didn't kill another infant to replace Stefania, which she, she found an infant that was already dead, right? Yeah. Uh, she's quite ruthless, but she didn't do that. You know, um, mm-hmm. and I've certainly not done the math on this, but it felt as though this might be one of the highest uh, percentages of female characters that I've encountered in a sword and sorcery story. It seems mm-hmm. like almost half of the characters were women in this, which is highly unusual in a sword and sorcery story. It's usually like maybe 10 percent. Yeah. Yeah. E- even the ones where there is a woman protagonist, then she tends to be singular, right? Because she is this mm-hmm. exception. She is this thing that is, you know, um, uh, out of con- uh, out of context, right? Yeah. Um, now, when you're reading stuff like, uh, you know, Sword and Sorcery and all these, what, to what extent you think like, okay, I see this thing, this thing is full of these um, maybe overused tropes, but what, what kernel do I want to pull out of this and, and, and make my own for narrative purposes or even gaming purposes? Um, is that part of like a track in your brain? I guess you were you had mentioned that it was part of a track of your brain. You know, your game designer brain, or maybe your your novel writing brain when you're you know looking at that stuff. It's, I'm actually it's funny because I'm uh, coincidentally I'm writing a second game for Choice of Games, which is kind of it's very heavily sword and sorcery inspired because cool. that's kind of one of the genres that uh, does really well f- for them. Uh, but it also has like historical Korean influences, nice. and so I'm mixing things up. I'm mixing things up a lot. Uh, but it was. I was kind of taking a, I was trying to take away, okay, what do I feel people come to these like books for? What am I enjoying about them? Part of it is the balance of action. For this one specifically, I like the balance of action and weird magic stuff mm-hmm. and downtime and, and, and the journey. Cause I feel like the journey is always an important part and or often is an important part, right? Like you're going from one location to another and another. And you see this um, in RPGs also that are in the fantasy genre, right? Where it's a lot about, exploring different places and the journey of going from one location to another. Mm. Um, And I felt this did that pretty well. Like some of it was kind of like coincidentally, this place has this important thing or this important person. (laughs) Um, But there were a lot of different locations felt very different. It didn't feel like, okay, here's one cool place, but we're not really being told why it's cool or different from the other cool places. Um, If, Felt, especially as we went on, I felt like the descriptions of locations 
kind of got better and cooler and more unique, right, including, right. The gar- including Penis Palace. Penis Palace. <laughs> the, 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 the fungus garden is just a yeah, ter- terrific set piece with that giant. Yeah. You know? It's funny, yeah. I was just watching the first episode of this season of The Mandalorian. That's that is exa- almost exactly what happens. This giant, you know, uh, thing coming out of a hole. You know, yeah. not at all, not at all symbolic of anything. <laughs> right? <And> I, yeah. <laughs> and I like that. I like that scene a lot because it was like the in, the plants being weird yeah. and like vampire plants basically yeah. was really cool. And the, the way that the sky was described, right, it's like right. here's this giant tree, no leaves, but all this like treasure hung on it. And then the sky isn't even gray. It's just like there's no clouds. It's just nothingness. Right. And I was like, yeah, that's pretty metal. <laughs> Yeah. And also, I just love the idea of putting this into a game because, like, first off, you see the bear tree that's full of magic, magical items and emeralds and other gems that's like next to a a strangely calm pool of water surrounded by very odd uh, kind of ominous looking vegetation. (laughs) And obviously, you know, don't you, you should not go get that treasure you should not go anywhere near that tree but of course like the players are going to want to figure out how they can get the treasure from the tree (laughs) so yeah and what was that um pathasius oh yeah Yeah, yeah. (laughs) this was a little bit of a gauntlet of how do you pronounce this exactly (laughs) it's like zoquanor and then they had like the demons at the end which i i also like the demons at the end because they were their son was Unus, right? right. Yeah. But they were they were kind of like a bickering couple from the 50s where it's like the father was like this detached, absent father <laughs> who was like, I don't want to have to deal with my son. And then the mother was just like, oh, you're so sweet. I love you. Let's like do what we can for you. But also I'm a demon who is naked and my hair is sentient and can like wrap around people <laughs> like tentacles. <laughs> I was kind of thinking of them like, um, you know, like those horror story parents who are, you know, do everything to get their kid's portfolio buffed up for college or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> right. So let's make him like a demon. But he said, but at a certain point, he still had to stand on his own. Like Eunice, you know, we've done enough for you. You got to do your thing now. <laughs> Trust fund demon child. Right, like, exactly. yeah. And one of the things we learn about the world of Kothar uh, is that you know. In the far, far, far past, mankind has spread out to the, across the galaxy and, and and gone to all the different planets. So clearly, this is some like the science fiction is in the far past. And in general, when it comes to your sword and sorcery, do you prefer it in the far future of the world we're in or the prehistory of the world we're in? I love both because because I like if I have too much of one, then I want the other. It's kind of the thing. Um, and I'm a big oh god, rest in peace, my favorite used bookstore, Hole in the Wall Books in Falls Church, Virginia, which closed like <laughs> oh, prior to pandemic times. But um, their fantasy and sci-fi section was just like immense and amazing and it's all mass market paperback books i would just go there and like i would try to find the most ridiculous covers and often the most (laughs) ridiculous covers are the sword and planet books because you have everything jam-packed in there you have like dragons with lasers coming out of their eyes and (laughs) you have like there's some planets in the background so you know it's space right um (laughs) but then you also have giant swords the size of people and like people kind of in barbarian garb uh, and you look at it, you're like, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> like, what is this story, actually? Uh, and those were, I don't know, those are like the, I really, I collect weird covers and like cheesy titles. Um, even if like, and my plan is eventually to read everything that I've accumulated over time. Right. right. 
But I do like. Isn't that always our right. goal? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's pretty <laughs> much that's probably why books. we started this project in the first place, right, Jeff? Just to actually read some that's of the books true. that we had on our shelves. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now I just need to come up with some kind of a project that will make me go through all the RPG books I have. Because right. I also feel like I have enough RPG books for an entire lifetime of gaming. Right. Yet I still keep buying RPG books. Right. Well, yep. we, have to, we, have to, we have to find a hook like Agatha and, and uh, Daniel Kwan and all the people oh, yeah. Asians represent. And like, oh, we're going to just construct this gaming book as a, as a text or something like that. Oh, yeah. Now, I have a question, I guess, as uh, related to this, because, you know, far future, far past. So in, in theory, this um, Kothar series can encompass all of human history and then whatever whatever else we can think of. So that allows uh, Gardner Fox to be a total magpie and pulling in stuff that he finds interesting from wherever. And that's a very natural instinct for us as gamers, fantasy mm-hmm. gamers, at least. So, oh, I, I like this thing from ancient Egypt and I like this thing from, you know mongolia like that i want to pull it in i want to have all these things and i like this thing from he-man right exactly (laughs) um so how do we have our magpie instinct are just like the rule of cool but also reconcile that with things that really matter like cultural sensitivity and, and and you know can i bring in mongolians and or have orcs be like noble warriors i know jason uh uh james mendez has talked about that a lot too right how can we do that yeah have the thing that's cool, acknowledge it's cool, but also kind of steer away from those things, the other the problematic elements, or at least acknowledge them. Yeah, so it's, it's, it is tricky because I kind of subscribe to this thought that when you're a GM, you are a game designer. <laughs> like, because you are, it, it, I mean, it, if you're running a campaign or like from an adventure that's already pre-written now, that's kind of one thing, right? But like so many GMs are like, okay, we're going to have a hook and we're going to see where we go from there, right? Um and then they want feedback from players. Like, what would you like to see incorporated in the game? And it's hard. The, the tricky part is it's hard sometimes to see, to t- be able to tell what elements are actually being pulled from kind of like racist or homophobic tropes, right? Like, there's stuff that you might not necessarily, it might not be like on the cover <laughs> or it might not be as like on the surface as like, oh, this is clearly uh, referencing this thing. Um and with orcs, I think that with you know James Mendez Hodes has like I think two articles about orcs that are like amazing, and I, he's a colleague of mine, and we work together as consultants. Um, and I think for a lot of people, myself included, like early on, I never thought like, oh yeah, orcs clearly like <laughs> like representation of the other and like specific actual like races that exist in the in the real world uh, that's like hugely problematic. Like as a kid, you don't think about that, and so I think a lot of times the tropes we grow up with as kids, they just ingra- get ingrained in our minds. Like, that's just how things are. Like, that's normal. And that's not like a problem. And that's the hardest, the stuff that we grew up with is the hardest to kind of like deprogram ourselves with. Um, and I don't, and different people will have, that's the other thing, right? Like we're, none of us, even as cultural consultants are like a monolith. Like we all have differing opinions on how to tackle these things. Um, but I think research is just, is re- to an extent is like really important because you need to kind of figure out and dissect, okay, I want to pull from if you, if you want to include like, okay, there's like a race and they're just evil for some reason. And also like they have these traits that I've just been ingrained in my mind is like, these are the traits that are represent evilness. Um, Like if you really dive into that, you will often find like, okay, this is a feature that's actually characteristic of these real people in the real world. And maybe I shouldn't be buying into that and incorporating into my games as well. Uh, And there are there is a lot of stuff out there now. Like Mendez has a blog with a lot of stuff on there that I consult with a lot. Agents represents have obviously done like this whole um, 
kind of analytical series and they're still doing it. And that's like really good reference material. And so I find that even just consuming that helps to kind of build that, that, that channel in your brain of being able to filter out, okay, I can take, I can be inspired by this piece and I can see what parts of it are problematic and figure out a way to either remove them or invert them in some way. So we're exploring it, you know, Lovecraft country style. Right. Um, because there's so many different approaches and I would also highly recommend. So this is, uh, Jenea Kemper is like a, a game scholar and specifically like a LARP scholar who does a lot of writing about and like emancipatory bleed. And <laughs> like I could go into like all this theory stuff, which would take forever, but just like, as a note, like her work, her writing, there's a lot of stuff on nordiclarp.org uh, is really good. Um, at talking about like how to kind of represent oppression and prejudice in games um, in a way that is constructive and not like totally irresponsible. Right, right. Is there a place then for the um, just the unredeemable other, and and how do we do that? Is it that we just say it's demonic? It's not human. It's this thing, you know. It's <laughs> you know. Um, I mean, maybe that's too big a topic for this this one thing, but you know, people don't want to give up their orcs, right, or their demons, and, and you know, can we do it? You know. <laughs> yeah, I mean. So what some people do is that they center, like, the orcs, right? Like, I, they try, they play orcs, they center the whole thing on exploring what, like, orc culture is like and what it, and kind of rehumanizing them, making them less like these irredeemable, irredeemable monsters that actually represent these, you know, this real human group of people. Um, other people are like, they don't want to touch it at all. My approach generally when it comes to monsters now in general, because so often monsters do represent actual human groups of people in different ways, or they'll have traits of them. Uh, and sometimes the creator doesn't even know that they're doing this. Uh, but I, I do try to make those groups, the, like the, the protagonists mm-hmm. or the group that are, are being um, centered in some way right. instead of the villains. Um, and that won't work in every single case. Like everything is so like case by case. Right. But that's kind of one of my favorite ways to take on these topics is to like respin it and recenter them as the heroes, or at least as like <laughs> more human. Right, right. Yeah, and for for me, one of the things that I'm doing in my current game is you know whenever I've got random tables or if I'm or if I'm using elements from other kind of pre-published adventures, whenever it says orc, whenever it says goblin, whenever it says hobgoblin or bugbear, it's just humans. Right, Everything mm-hmm. in my world is humans. And yeah. that's because I enjoy the uh, exploring the moral amb- ambiguity of like what is what is bad, what is evil. Are these people our enemy? If so, why are they our enemy? You know. So for me, I feel like um, monsters, in at least in my approach to gaming, usually fall into three categories: either they're people like us, who either we agree with or we don't, or whatever, um, or they're like they're they're human like, just in the sense that like. Um, like a like a vampire or a lich or a ghoul, I guess those are all undead, um, or a werewolf when they're currently possessed by the curse. There's like mm-hmm. a supernatural change to a human form, um, or there's just like a truly, or it's just a beast of some sort. But like mm-hmm. the demi-human um, kind of category of monster, like you, they're shaped like a human, but they're still like alive and sentient and were born and raised, but they're just evil. I don't really. And that's not really interesting to me because there's no moral yeah. ambiguity. There's nothing There's nothing really to kind of sink your teeth in. And it's also perpetrating a lot of these kind of um, bad problematic elements in gaming. 
Yeah. I mean, one thing I definitely do is that I try to never have there be an enemy that where the only possible solution to dealing with them is violence. Yeah. (laughs) Because that that will approaching it that way will actually kind of um, coincidentally, not coincidentally, but like indirectly address a lot of the other issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, And actually to bring it back to this book for an instant. In fact, even though there are demons and stuff like that, the actual most of the evil here is all caused by humans, right? It's the evil wizard. It's this. It's all their desires, right? It's the the bandit king, right? The demons are just the demons, but they're not instigating any of the action. This thing that's in the the lake is just kind of doing what it does. It eats things. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. It's not, absolutely the know. demon in the lake is 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 in, in what I was talking about. Like that's that's a beast, right? You know, and when it comes to the demon parents. Like, although they are, like, I guess, pure evil or whatever, because they're demons, we're also being introduced to the extent of these kind of relatable elements. We're talking about, like, the absent father, the overbearing mother. We're bringing these kind of relatable human um, aspects onto these creatures. They're not just a bag of hit points to kill. Right, right. And and even the, like, the bandit king, he's pretty, you know, they have these funny little bits of dialogue. He's clearly a horrible person, right? And Or even the initial three bandits who, were, you know, encounter them. Um, mm-hmm. There, but there's a, just enough differentiations, like you know, it's like oh that guy, that guy, and that guy. It's not just like number one, number two. Um, sure. Um, and in a more modern sort of post D and D novel, I think those bandits would have been orcs or goblins, right? Most likely, rather than just bandits, because that's not exotic enough for for our game. Yeah. So. Well, so Cleo, you'd mentioned one of the three one of the th- three brains uh, or lenses through which you are reading this book is through the the lens of the game designer. So I'm curious as you were reading this and you've kind of you and you've got this idea of this kind of um, sword and sorcery thing you're currently working on. Was there anything about Kothar and the Conjurer's Curse that kind of inspired you or or gave you a, a new perspective on sword and sorcery? Well, there was one thing that I noticed, and it was kind of like a "don't do this" thing, <laughs> um, where and it's just something that happens so often, like when playing D anD D or other tabletop RPGs, where so much of the early stuff is just there by coincidence. Like you happen to go into this town where this girl who is like a magician's assistant is actually the princess and this like who doesn't know she's like the princess right yeah and like like that was total coincidence that he just ended up there at that time while they were about to like burn her alive like seconds later um and that's something that i try to avoid both in what i'm gming and when i'm designing a game and also like when i'm when i'm writing that things just kind of happen because like it's convenient and it's a coincidence. Yeah, it's that, um, it's that kind of murder she wrote thing where it's like you know she just lives in this town, but a murder, a new murder of the week is happening. Even though like it's like how many murders are happening in this small town where where she lives? I know the population must be suffering. Like, a lot. <laughs> but like I I feel like um, but also on the flip side of that, I thought it was really kind of a fun thing that I would love to steal and use in one of my games is how in the beginning. You know, Kothar is like traveling through this desert and he's being um, hunted by these like sand demons. Uh, but then it almost seems like they're like hurting him. And then mm-hmm. he realizes he is being herded toward this like oasis. And then when he gets there, there's this wizard who like had actually sent these sand demons out to herd him to him because he had a quest for them. And actually, I thought that was kind of a fun way of introducing a, a plot point. Yeah, I like that, too, because it was kind of a, that was the first moment where I was like, OK, I'm a little bit surprised and maybe there's hope (laughs) (laughs) now obviously if you're writing narrative um we these days uh do not like to have this level of coincidence or just randomness but 
what about at the sort of more open-ended experiences, you know, tabletop or whatever? Mm -hmm. Do we, we have to do, what level of, do we allow for just sheer contingency and what level is sort of more uh, focused experience? I like, because Stefania, it's funny because Stefania, I was thinking at the time that she felt a little bit potentially, and this is something that happens and I don't like discourage this, this happening in games, but you know when like there's an NPC that the players just suddenly like really take a liking to, mm-hmm. or like even like a monster. Like I, I remember in in grad school with with Sharon Biswas, who was on an earlier episode. Um, he was GMing, and he mentioned like offhand, like yeah, there's some cages with crabs in the like giant crabs, and I like I made one of those crabs my pet and became like this huge like a, he became like a crab god later right. on or something. Like it became this huge thing, and like it was like, such a throwaway line for him. And Stefania felt a little bit at first, kind of like oh yeah. There's this girl. I wasn't sure because I was like, it kind of felt like a girl he w- saved and then maybe was going to like let go. And this was going to be an early example of like his benevolence. Mm-hmm. But then ended up, she always, you know, she obviously ended up becoming like she ended up being royalty and stuff. <laughs> so it felt a little bit like that NPC where the players are like, no, I really like this person. Like, let's keep them. And the GM's like, uh, okay. She's a princess. <laughs> like, why? How can I justify like making her this important? Um, exactly. It's like they had like a random encounter table that you rolled on. And it's like, okay, you 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 rolled on um, a, a villagers are burning a witch. It was like the the random yeah. encounter you rolled on. But then like the character, the, the PCs saved the witch, and now like they really like this character. So you're like, okay, there's got to be something more to her. So you rolled on a table to figure right. out like what her secret is, and it's like, oh, she's secretly a queen of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think like, I think that's, I, I actually really like how games kind of organically do that sometimes. Yeah. I do think you don't want like, if possible, and this can be, I, this is really hard as a designer and a, and a GM, like to plant seeds early on that, you know, are going to unfold. Cause you don't know what the players are going to chase after necessarily. Right. Like it yeah. could be like, they might be like, Oh, that giant tree of treasure. No, I want to like go examine this plant over there, and the plant's going to become like the huge, like this carnivorous plant, this poison like <laughs> vampire plant is going to end up being a big plot point. Um, but like planting those seeds that will eventually, like putting them there, kind of as a Chekhov's gun thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's there for a reason; they're not just like randomly there. And so it it, it is hard though to kind of because you don't want to sh- like shepherd people too much, right? right you right. want people to explore explore the game the way they want to, uh, but having everything be a little bit too coincidental because early on it kind of felt like we're going here and now we're going here and doing this other thing. And now we're going to this other place and doing this other thing. And it felt a little bit kind of how like disjointed D and D games can go mm-hmm. where it's like, what, is anything connecting these things? And later on it became much more connected. Right. But early on I was kind of like, is this going to feel like those early D and D games where, uh, nobody really knows what they're doing so we're just gonna and and then there's this other enemy and uh no it's not related to anything else but i needed to give you something to do right so here it is i wonder i wonder to what extent like even though this is quite a short novel um it was meant to be read in one sitting or was meant to be read like you know on your lunch break and so then you sort of like miss the disjointedness because that was that was yesterday when you read the last chapter and then today you read this you know um and so yeah um it did feel a little bit i mean because i know fox also has uh he's you know he wrote comic books right. yeah, um right. for dc right yeah, yeah he created the justice uh justice league of america and and co-created okay. the flash and hawkman and stuff like that and then i think i think kothar and the conjurer's curse specifically also became a conan arc um i think so like in the early 70s i, think I saw that on the wikipedia page yeah. or something yeah. oh i didn't know that yeah Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I guess I should read the Wikipedia pages for these books more often. <laughs> but uh, it feels like it feels like comic book writing in some ways, like the, the pace of it and the again, like the 
how much information do you need to keep in your head at any one time? Right, right. Now, one thing that I thought was kind of cool in this book that I think would be potentially an interesting thing to throw into your game, and I'd love to know your guys' thoughts on this, is so um, Stefania has this curse on her where if this wizard dies, she dies. And I was like, would it be really fun or would it be really fucked up to have like the big bad of your game put a curse like that on one of the PCs? So now the PCs, they want to they want to defeat this person, but they don't want to kill this person because their own life is now tied to their life. Is that a is that a cool is that a cool fun thing to explore? Or are we taking away agency there? What do you think? I think if a player, I think like you would need the player's consent for that probably because that could potentially just be like really, really stressful in a way <laughs> that you're also just constantly worried about like, are the other players in the, like in my group going to get so fed up with like having to worry about this? They're going to be like, no, it's just, it's worth it. Let's just like, it's okay. Sacrifices <laughs> need to be made. Um, like, thank you. Thank you for uh, sacrificing yourself. <laughs> like, wait, I didn't agree to this. Um, but I, I would, I would potentially be really interested in playing on that. Um, if it was like, if there was a conversation about it beforehand, yeah. I wouldn't want that to be like a surprise. Right. <laughs> I mean, I think, um, Yes, definitely have a conversation if it's a game that's already in progress. And then it could be the very premise of a game, which in case yeah. you would then, of course, have that conversation anyway, because any game that you're starting, you're going to have the conversation with the players about what this game is about. Right. So um, but I could see that as the the inciting incident of the game. You're already sort of heroes. We just jump into the story right in the middle. You've just been whammied with this curse or, you know, set of obligations. How are you going to go about discharging them, uh, negotiating around them or, or whatever it is that might happen? Do you see, um, I mean, one of the things that we talk about a lot is sort of a story or a narrative-based game is sort of like the petitioning and granting of petitions, you know, that kind of interaction. You, could you see like a sword and sorcery game that has everything but the, 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 cleaving, the, the cleaving of the heads? As a, as, <laughs> um, everything but like that, yeah. Yeah. Is, um, yeah, I mean, like, God, I just, because this did make me realize that like, I, I do want to read more Sword and Sorcery to see what variation is out there already about, like, how much it leans into different things, right? Like, because some are more, like, some are very focused on the cleaving of heads. Right. Uh, and others are, I don't know, because I also just read, I, re- I read a lot of, I guess, what they call, like, romantic fantasy also, mm-hmm. just growing up. And I, I, I'm always curious about where the lines between subgenres are. Mm-hmm. And so Sword and Sorcery, where it is about kind of more... I don't know more about what God, my vocabulary is totally failing at the time, but like the stuff that isn't the cleaving, <laughs> yeah, the, the, like the, the stuff that is kind of more maybe political yeah. mm-hmm. in some, maybe political, maybe also kind of, again, maybe just more human focused or the problems have to be solved. Have you read much Elric? Yeah. Like a, a long time ago at this okay, point. So okay. I don't remember, but I, that's the other thing. I love named swords. So that was Frostfire was a nice little thing. Yeah. Um, and you know it wasn't it wasn't an evil sword, so that was a nice twist <laughs> sure. from that. But yeah, I would games or the games, well, games too, but stories that focus more that are set in like sword and sorcery worlds, but maybe focus on the elements that are not just the. <laughs> this is gonna sound counterintuitive because when you think of sword and sorcery, you do think of like the violence and the fighting, right? Sure. The fighting is a huge part of it's it. It's a sword. Yeah. Right. yeah. Like I don't think you can like get rid of that entirely, but I I the my favorite parts are going to generally be the times when we're focusing on other things. And I also like the sorcery part's always gonna like whenever I'm playing a game, I'm always gonna play a magic user. Like yeah. always. 
I do like the stories and the games that focus more on the weird magic mm-hmm. um, and like what is it capable of and how is it different than other stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and this did some cool things like that. I mean, like yeah, floating pentagrams at like and demon summoning <laughs> uh, and flay like demon weird flaying right. mechanisms right. Uh, with tentacles and like shadow tentacles. Right, and it's <laughs> and anti sorcery amulets. Right, and, and it's yeah, it's pretty clearly implied that Lupulina is basically a dual class druid and magic yeah. user, right? Because she's like, well, I haven't done any of my necromantic stuff in years because they'll be able to find me. So she's just doing this nature magic with the you know the wolves and what have you. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, I wonder if maybe something like Seven Samurai, where you have like these blow up with these giant set pieces and then there's these long periods of just sort of ramping tension but also downtime mm-hmm. those those kind of rhythms and then back to that set piece so maybe that's what can be done with sword and sorcery sort of to sort of not completely invert it but sort of give it a sort of uh you know 45 degree turn this way it's like okay well we we'll do this and then we can explore all that other stuff that's in a sword and sorcery world just not what we normally get the chance to do back to you yeah, yeah. i think it's really one thing that i would like to see um explored it's kind of also like power level within these worlds, right? Because I don't like if you're also talking about like in D and D levels, right? Everybody feels pretty powerful in in the Kothar world, and you generally have stories that are focused on people who have pretty good abilities yeah. at that point, right? Because you don't you generally think like your instinct is like I don't want to see someone who like doesn't know how to use a sword or like it's barely knows how to like perform magic. But I'm actually really interested in what it's like trying to survive in a world like this where you are like a level one like <laughs> wizard and you're just learning to like become a barbarian i i'm really because you see we've seen so much of the because these wizards i mean these magic users are very like ext- like demon summoning level powerful at least um mm-hmm. like able to wipe out evil kings and stuff um but it it, it i'm curious about I guess that, that that kind of dives into dark fantasy too, right? Um, where you have people who aren't all powerful right. and who like probably will die, right? Right. So I guess Kothar's origin is the closest we get to that in the story, which is a nice moment. So the, his his telling mm-hmm. about his youth. Yeah. Um, so we do have to wrap up soon. Is there any last thoughts that you want to share with us, Cleo, about the book or anything else that's going on at the moment? Um, no, I think we, I mean we covered a lot about the book. Um, I am, yeah. I mean, like I will eventually have this choice of games game out that is at least partially sword and sorcery inspired. Um, and so I was glad to have the opportunity to read this because just to dive back into, I, cause this is a genre that's very nostalgic, right? Like we don't, you, there's not a, when you think about it, you don't think about new titles often. You think about older stuff. Mm. Um, so I was glad to have this opportunity. You've also got another game coming out, Battle of the Boy Bands. You want to tell us about oh, yeah. that? <laughs> yeah, Battle of the Boy Bands. <laughs> Obviously, Sword of Sorcery <laughs> um, But yeah, that's like, it's funny because that one's kind of, it's very influenced by like the K-pop industry. So you're going in a very different direction <laughs> thematically. Um, but yeah, it's like you're playing pop music producers. And it, it's funny because it is actually very, it's one of my more cutthroat games, even though the theme you wouldn't necessarily think so. Because uh, you're, you're building boy bands and making them compete against each other and you get it's very sabotage heavy uh, <laughs> pvp boy bands right yeah pretty much amazing so cleo if people want to find out more about your games or about you or contact you on social media what's the best way what's the best way to do that yeah um so you can pretty much find me anywhere online um as cys davis so that's twitter patreon instagram um, like pretty much everything. I also, that's also my website, cysdavis.com. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are actually some very good uh, resources on that on your website. So I do encourage people to check it out. And all right, Jeff, 
Uh, anything else that we, we, you want uh, our listeners to know about? Yeah, please head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash appendix and book club. Our patrons are able to not only participate in our pre-show discussions, but they can also listen to the recordings of the other patron book clubs, which are only available to listen to to our patrons. Um, And I'd like to give a shout out to the patrons who did join us for the patron book club. Uh, So thank you to Matt Richards, Kurt Hockenberry, Robert Coleman, Dan Alexander, Michael Kelly, and Adam Stiers. That was a really fun conversation earlier. I would also like to give a shout out to a few of our other patrons as well. Thank you to Sean Birch, David Moreau, Nacho Sevilla, Lucio Nothlich Pimentel. Uh, sorry about that, Lucio. Uh, Adrian Romero, Vixter, Eric Johnson, and David J. Hotstream. Thank you so much for your support. I also want to let everybody know that our next two episodes are going to be on Fred Saberhagen's The Black Mountains, and the episode after that will be on Lynn Carter's The Immortal of World's End. All right. We really appreciate all of you. Couldn't do without you. Please give us some feedback if you'd like to at uh, at appendix underscore n on twitter or you can send us an email at appendix n book club at gmail.com uh, rate us and review us on your podcaster of choice it does help people find us thank you so much for coming on cleo it's been a total honor yeah it was a blast thanks for having me on <laughs> right. yeah so great see you in the stacks read on the library is closed